The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover a positive path for spiritual living. Welcome to Voices of Unity with Rev. Jackie Fernandez. And this is Rev. Jackie Fernandez. I'm here at the Tower on the Sacred Grounds of Unity Village. And I'm so uh, thrilled to be continuing through the season for nonviolence to have just amazing guests who are joining the show for this. Last week we talked about healthy anger with author Matt Kahn. And today I'm really thrilled to have with me Amitha Swadheen, an educator, storyteller, healer, and strategist dedicated to fighting interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Amitha, I invited you today because you are the founder of Mirror Memoirs, and I'm just so excited to share this work with my audience. So welcome to Voices of Unity. Thank you so much for having me on, Jackie. Well, I have your bio in front of me, and it is robust. Oh, you don't need to read the whole thing, <laughs> You know, <please. laughs> I'm, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, you know, I'm going to keep directing people to the website, mirrormemoirs.com, and, um, because it's, it's worth taking the time to read, and I do want to share some of it, um, because I think that, you know, to really introduce you to the audience, you know, we, we mostly have a, a Unity slash New Thought audience uh, for this show, and I, you know, the name of the show is voices of unity and what I love doing here is bringing different people you know to the table to have that voice and that experience of unity that we are all you know in this life together in this world and you know all of our journeys impact one another and you know to really just bring the work forward that that has impacted me, which you and I got to spend a really glorious day together. It was, you know, painful and terrifying and um, wonderful and joyful and healing. And um, so, you know, I have just a lot of gratitude in my heart for you and for the work that you do because it has impacted me personally. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you could be there with us. We were at Creating Change, the National LGBTQ Task Force's annual conference in January in Dallas, and Mirror Memoirs led that day-long institute of healing for child sexual abuse survivors. So I'm so glad to know it was a healing experience for you. It really was. And, you know, and I I was sort of comforted by the number of people who attended who, you know, shared that, yeah, well, I almost didn't come. You know, I almost sent you a note to like, because I was one of them too, was like, nah, forget it. I'm just not going to do this. And, um, (laughs) and so glad, all of it, so glad that, that we did. Um, And to be able to have the opportunity to have, this kind of healing conversation in the context of the queer community, that to me is what was so profound because I've done a lot of work around, you know, my own personal experience with childhood sexual abuse, but not in the context of queer community. And that was really different and really just took that healing to a deeper level. So the, I applaud this work and thank you for being a trailblazer in it. Oh, I mean, honestly, it heals me as well, because I'm also a survivor who's non-binary and queer and a person of color. And I I feel it every time I'm in circle with people, whether I'm participating or holding the space. It's uh, it's work that we deserve. 
you know? Yes, yes, it's work that we deserve. So I'm going to read a little bit of your bio so you can go ahead and have a sip of that coffee that you got <laughs> over in the West Coast. I know it's still early for you. Amita is a frequent speaker at colleges, conferences, and community organizations nationwide. You know, no surprise there. And a consultant with 20 years of experience, which that's a little surprising because you're you're young, you know, you're you're young like me. <laughs> I also have 20 Early years 40, of experience yeah. in, in different areas, and it's just hard to come to terms with that. But yes, we, we've we earned it, right? Um, 20 years of experience advocating for and with trauma survivors of all ages, especially in low-income, immigrant, and LGBTQIA plus communities of color. Through Swatin Consulting, they support nonprofits, universities, and government agencies to adopt intersectional and trauma-informed approaches to their work while still developing robust and sustainable organizational structures. So here's here's the piece. So. In 2016, we're just talking four years ago, Amita received a four-year Just Beginnings Collaborative Fellowship, allowing them to create Mirror Memoirs, a national storytelling and organizing nonprofit intervening in rape culture by uplifting the narratives, healing, and leadership. That's a key word. He, well, healing is also a key word, but also leadership of LGBTQIA plus people of color who survived child sexual abuse. The initial audio archive to be released in spring 2020, so we're almost there, features 60 survivors across 15 states. Tell us about this. Well, I yeah, it's true. I have been doing work to end child sexual abuse in some way for 23 years now. Uh, and if you do the math on that, I'll be 42 in July. So yes, I started this work as a young person myself. And I think, I think that's really important to name because I think often in the world of nonprofits and paid community organizing work, Adults often forget that young people are oppressed as well. I mean, mm-hmm. all young people are oppressed by, by the violence of ageism and adultism. And then for many of us who are also queer and people of color and immigrants or the children of immigrants, uh, as as I was myself, you know, you're facing all kinds of layers of societal violence And often then, in in my case, I was also being raped in my home throughout my childhood by my father. And I knew that that was wrong. And I knew that I wanted to resist. And I also had a hunch that I perhaps was not the only person going through it. But I didn't have a sense of how common child sexual abuse is because it's not taught about in schools. It's one of the few public health and social justice issues that affects as many millions of people as it does that we don't talk about as a societal issue. And just to give your listeners a sense of the scope, the CDC estimates that one in four girls and one in six boys are raped or sexually assaulted by age 18. That's 20% of the U.S. population, which is roughly, I think, about 60 million people. And the American Academy of Pediatrics put out a study in 2012 uh, showing that gender nonconformity is a risk factor for child sexual abuse. So what that means is that On top of the baseline of 20% of children already being at risk, any child who exhibits any kind of gender nonconformity, whether it's the way they talk or the way they walk or the clothes they like to wear or the toys they like to play with or what have you, they are even more at risk, up to six times likelier Mm -hmm. for being sexually assaulted. And it's actually male assigned at birth children. So, you know... When, when it comes to gender, unfortunately, in our current 
social paradigm, when a baby is born, we leave it to adult doctors to take a look at that baby's body and make a guess about that baby's gender. Because, of course, the baby can't yet communicate with us right. in a way that we can understand as adults. Hey, this is who I am. Um, but, you know, what I heard time and again in Mirror Memoirs was people saying, I knew who I was from the beginning in terms of my gender identity, and I was trying to assert it as early as two, three, four, five years old, telling the adults around me, hey, you got my gender wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm transgender or I'm non-binary. And even if they didn't know those words, it was often saying, I'm not a girl, I'm actually a boy, or I'm not a boy, I'm actually a girl. And for almost everyone who was gender non-conforming in childhood, in our archives, what we heard again and again and again in these stories is they were verbally abused, emotionally abused, and often shamed for being gender nonconforming by someone in their household or extended family, and often more than one person, before anyone uh, ever put hands on them and sexually assaulted them. And this maps to the American Academy of Pediatrics study, which showed that the researchers from that study said, we have two hypotheses about why gender nonconforming kids are being targeted in sexual violence more than any other kids in terms of gender. Number one, we think that some adults who are homophobic or transphobic are trying to use sexual violence and rape as a tool of quote unquote gender correction, mm -hmm. which is so horrific. I don't even like to say it out loud, but right. at the same time, I feel like we need to name it. We see this with adults in South Africa as well. There's been many documented cases of adult lesbians being raped by cisgender men in a way of quote unquote correction. Uh, so that's one theory that the researchers had. And the second theory, and this, this one I definitely heard in people's stories is often a parent or a caretaker who is struggling with homophobia or transphobia, when their child shows or verbalizes gender nonconformity, that parent or caretaker will shame them, will deny it, will gaslight that child, will not honor that child's true identity. And then if there's any perpetrators in the family, in the home, in the extended community, in the religious community, in the school, around that child, and they see that the parent or the caregiver, if the, if the parent is not themselves the abuser, the potential perpetrator witnesses, oh, this is a child who's already being shamed. Mm -hmm. This is a child who's already being not protected. And if I want to go after someone who's already vulnerable, I'm going to target that child, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that makes terrible sense. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, unfortunately, what that means for anyone doing work in LGBTQI plus communities, and then particularly those who are vulnerable to racism, uh, to because of immigration status, because of uh, language accessibility, physical ability, intellectual disabilities, right? These all of these other marginalized or oppressed identities and experiences then compound the vulnerability to sexual violence, which is why Mirror Memoirs is so intersectional in our approach. We decided early when I got this fellowship, I brought a team 
of queer and trans people of color who are survivors of child sexual abuse, who are friends and comrades of mine together. And I said, will you be my advisory board? Will you help me shape the research questions that we have hypotheses around so that I can get on the road for the first 18 months of my fellowship and travel across the United States and just sit with people who are willing to tell me their stories? And we did audio recordings so that people who wanted to stay anonymous could be anonymous. And that's how the project came about. We had many hypotheses around how we could get people outside of our immediate demographic to understand not only is gender nonconformity a risk factor for child sexual abuse, but when you bring race into it as well, and particularly for black people and people who are indigenous to the Americas or whose ancestors are indigenous to the Americas, because of the history of colonial violence and enslavement that happened in the United States, you actually see the pattern of state violence against children as well. So let me just be more more clear and and spell that out. One of the patterns you see across these 60 stories in mirror memoirs is that for transgender, non-binary, intersex, and gender non-conforming black and indigenous children and other children of color, not only was the family often a site of harm, but schools were a site of harm, uh, churches or religious institutions, temples, what have you, mosques, they were often a site of harm. Um, we know that 40% of all homeless youth in major cities across the United States are LGBTQI+. And what we don't talk about enough is that 53% of those youth are fleeing violence in their homes. So if you have a child who's being abused at home, they run away, they're living on the streets. Well, that makes them uh, vulnerable to sexual assault by the police because often they're engaging in survival activities that are criminalized, for example, survival sex work. So you hear a lot in our stories, oh, well, then I was living in the park and I was trading my body to try to have money for food and then the cops raped me. Mm. And we're talking about teenagers, right? Still yeah. children. Um, you also hear about mental health hospitals being a site of harm for trans and non-binary and intersex children of color. <clears throat> People who whose parents committed them to mental health institutions because if they said, hey, I'm transgender or I'm not a boy or I'm not a girl, I'm not my assigned sex at birth, uh, the parents pathologized that experience and had their child committed. And then those children were very vulnerable to rape and sexual assault and other kinds of abuse and torture by the adult staff within those mental health hospitals, sometimes by the other children, but most often by the adult staff. And then you also see uh, young people who were struggling with suicidal ideation because of the violence they were experiencing at home or in their communities who then got committed because they were displaying mental health disabilities and then faced that violence. And of course, the you know, the pipeline that we're ultimately seeing is that our communities as queer and trans people of color, because of this arc or this like lifelong pathway of violence, we become very disproportionately vulnerable to criminalization and ultimately mm -hmm. incarceration. And we absolutely know uh, that prisons are and juvenile detention centers and immigrant detention centers, which are all part of the prison structure, are a place where people get raped, most often by the guards. And you hear that in people's stories and mirror memoirs as well. So I think my motivation, yes, I wanted to provide a place of healing for our people and 
we do have a social enterprise aspect to the project where uh, people who have told their stories within the project can get trained to become paid workshop leaders to teach the, the learnings and the findings of this model. Um, but also, we we want to engage in advocacy with like-minded organizations and like-minded people across this country to reform these institutions that are sites where our members are being raped. And ultimately, when I think about a movement to end sexual violence, I know that we have to look beyond the prison system for healing and justice and accountability. Uh, we are absolutely an abolitionist organization because of the way that our people have been raped and tortured in prisons. And so I feel like there's something really powerful that happens when you're not hearing just one survivor story, but you're saying, here's 60 at once, and now we're going to gather in a circle live and in person with 30 people, with 15 people, with 50 people, and we're going to share our stories too. And you start to see that the patterns repeat and repeat and repeat. And the most hopeful thing, I think, because, you know, you spoke to this in the introduction, that it can feel terrifying for a lot of people to step into a mirror memoirs healing circle. Mm -hmm. And I actually want to hear from you more about yeah. that, because I get this feedback a lot of like, what came up for you when you were thinking of coming and how mm -hmm. did you move past it? But ultimately, I asked every survivor in this project, the same 15 questions. And the last few questions, I hope, are something visionary and hopeful and even perhaps joyful that we're inviting all of our listeners to ask themselves. And one of those questions is, if you stepped through a portal into another dimension, and in that dimension, capitalism doesn't exist, <laughs> and your only responsibility from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep is to heal yourself, and you have a bottomless toolbox to support that endeavor, what's in the toolbox and where does it come from? And the reason we ask that question is because we want to build advocacy campaigns, not only against the systems that we know are hurting us and need to end or be reformed, but also we want to build campaigns advocating for our people to have the things that will actually support our wellness and our joy uh, as human beings. And so you can't advocate for what you can't name. And that's why I really pushed people to say, no, if you had everything that you needed, what would you have? And that's been really beautiful to play some of those clips back and, and imagine how we get there, how we get our people these things that they're saying they want and they need. And then the last question I asked everybody is, what's your personal vision for how humanity can end child sexual abuse? Because I have to tell you, Jackie, 20 years ago when I was you know, one of many people who are child sexual abuse survivors saying we need to treat this like any other social injustice that we can organize to end. So many people said to me, well, this has always been part of humanity and we can't mm -hmm. end this violence, which I yeah. find horrific to yeah. say to yeah. people of like, there's nothing we can do. And, and I'm very proud of every single person who shared this, their story in this archive, because every single person had an answer. Yeah. It may not be the answer. Certainly they were different answers, but everybody grappled with the question and had something to say about how we get to a world where, where children are not being raped. And I, I believe we can get there if we all ask ourselves that question. Ah, and that's so powerful. You know, first let's take a breath because you shared a lot in, in all of this. And I, I could imagine that there are some listeners who are just utterly shocked and completely unaware of some of the information you gave in, in terms of statistics of 
of how people, especially people in the LGBTQI um, community, and then when you add intersectionalities to you know people of color and people with different abilities. Um, so just I just want to acknowledge that for the listeners and just to give a pause for a breath with that um, to those who are just awakening to to that reality and um, to be able to expand the conversation and understanding of what happens in this world and um, in the way of harming people and of injustice and how I love how you beautifully mapped all of that. You know, we hear like mass incarceration. We hear, you know, black people get incarcerated, Hispanics get incarcerated at higher rates than whites. You know, we hear like these sort of sound bites. But what you did is you created a whole thread, a whole journey of of the result of violence in the home of of transphobia, phobia, homophobia, the results about how it compounds throughout a person's life and sends someone on this path that just continues this trajectory of, of violence and, um, you know, even calling out that, you know, what we don't say is that we know that there is a high population of, of trans and queer youth uh, who are homeless, but we don't give the full story, which is because they're fleeing violence in the home because they're trans and queer, Mm -hmm. you know, so to be able to like give the fullness of the story and paint that picture and, and bring it all the way through to then, oh, and, and we have people in, in prisons in the board, you know, on the border, like it's all part of, it's all different aspects of a very similar conversation, which now then you just got to it here at the end of like, can we imagine a world where child sexual abuse doesn't exist? And to hear people, well, I don't, it's always, it always has. So it always will be And like how devastating, you know, how unconscious are we that, that we can't even just hold that question and, and be, of course we can get there. Of course, like to have, um, and I, I wonder if you were to sit, if you were to break people out into different groups, because it's one thing that we did when we were together for that day is um, we had the, like sort of the sub caucuses where, you know, um, the white people who were in the group would go to one area and people of color would stay in another for some of the discussions and we would come back together. And I wonder how the question is um, received when you break it up by different demographics who are hearing it. So, for example, a woman of any kind who hears the question, you know, how can, what can we do to end childhood sexual abuse who might have this belief that like, this is what happens to girls mm-hmm. or a trans person who might have this belief. Well, this is what happens to a trans child, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, <laughs> How how far is the leap to even begin the um, the imagining of a world where that's not a given? Well, I I have been in the question for a long time, so I think it's it's something I would ask you because you were stepping into a mirror memoir space not that long ago for mm-hmm. the first time. How did it land? Because we asked that question you did. In, in, you did. In, in our <laughs> gathering. How did it feel for you to be asked that question? It was, is it something that you've sat with before? Is it something you've heard people answer before? It had never even crossed my mind to ask the question. 
And so what I sat with was grief. When I realized that, and, and that my first thought was very much that of like, it, there's no way to end that. It's just like, that'd be like saying, how can we end war? It's like, it's people. And, and, and just to hear that and the way you presented it and the conversation you held around it just stopped me in my tracks. And grief just set in that, that I had that paradigm. And so who am I without that paradigm? That's what you're asking. That for me, that's what you're asking. You know, someone else might already have been, you know, begging the question for years, you know, but for me, you know, I, who am I without this paradigm? So, so now can I, I can ask the question and now I be, I can begin to formulate an answer for it and a vision for it. And, and I think that's the power of your work is that you're calling people up into this kind of consciousness of where we can collectively hold a vision for it and a belief that it's possible. That's that is that's, my hope. That's powerful <laughs> stuff. I mean, that's that's shifting massive consciousness. That's, I mean, it's this is not this is this is big stuff and and powerful stuff. And to be able to bring people into a space, you know, where where we can just sit with that question and be and because it's not you're not just poking a little bit. You're the the question demands an answer because who do we have you know it's easy to have compassion and um and hope and desire for the well-being of a child and so when you just so forget everything we just talked about in terms of demographics and violence and and specifics but we just ask the question you know how can we end childhood sexual abuse oh my gosh children are being sexually abused you know that's like there's a disconnect in um in just what's okay but then when we get when we settle into the reality that we all live in and what we have accepted, um, it's like we just we have lost sight that this is this is really not OK. And and it is high time that we we take action, that we create vision for it and that we take true action to end that reality. I mean, I, yes, I, I definitely believe we can end this violence and I, it will take millions of us, if not yes. billions of us around the world to take a stand for the, the reality and the vision that we can end it. And I think we can get there, but the, the first step is that we have to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> so and that's, and that's, a, that's a huge storytelling project. <laughs> that is a be, huge step. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so to say, tell me, yep. you know, mm-hmm. And, and people don't want to talk about it and when people don't want to hear about it. So, you know, so the first step is to talk about it and the second step is to listen, right? Okay, so that's the music. So we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back and we're just going to keep diving into this amazing work. And we've got Amitha Swadheen here on Voices of Unity. We'll be right back. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Voices of Unity with Reverend Jackie Fernandez. 
And we are back with Amit Swadin from founder and healer and uh, founder of Mirror Memoirs. And we were just talking about this um, this crazy question she asks. <laughs> What's your vision? How can you what what steps can you take? How can you impact um, the end of childhood sexual abuse? And, and you know, I was sharing that for me, like, I was just overcome with grief that I didn't even have a paradigm for that, that there was even a possibility. And so I, you know, in my experience with you, I mean, that at Creating Change in the All Day Institute that we were in um, was, okay, so... I'm I'm grieving that this is my paradigm that it has not even occurred to me that we could collectively end this kind of violence. And so but you still I still had to answer the question, you know, and so it became like okay, what can I do personally? What, you know, what do I think needs to be done collectively? And so it just it got me into that creative space. And you know, I want to harken back to um there was another um aspect that you talked about um with um, the questions that you were asking people um, that what do you have in your toolkit? Like if capitalism wasn't a thing, what do you have in your toolkit to support your healing? And I think the impact of that question is similar in that it puts you into a creative space and of, of recognizing what do you already have within you or around you or near you or in your your experience that you can bring forward creatively and generatively um, to impact change for your life personally and for the world. And and those are powerful questions. Oh, I mean, they were really fun to ask, too. Mm -hmm. I I come from an organizing and policy advocacy background in terms of my academic training and a lot of my work experience. And I think that often as nonprofit organizers or, you know, people working around government spaces, we think in really narrow ways around, you know, what law can we pass that's going to make this better, that's going to make this go away. And that certainly can be part of our work. You know, one of the things that people have said they want from Mirror Memoirs as we grow uh, and, and launch and grow our membership model is everybody almost within this membership base is living with some form of post-traumatic stress disorder and often complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And very few people, even when they get diagnosed by a therapist, are told, I mean, this was my story as well. I got diagnosed when I was 20 uh, because of the way that I was having a major writer's block in college to the point where it was debilitating. And uh, the therapist diagnosed me and did not tell me that PTSD is actually protected as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And what that means is if you have a diagnosis that and, you know, I should name most people who are living with PTSD have not had the privilege of going to therapy and getting Mm -hmm. diagnosed. Right. So Mm -hmm. people are often just living with this disability without actually having a, a letter even that could entitle them to the legal benefits. But you know, for the purposes of policy advocacy, it is absolutely a protected class and that entitles you to accommodations in the workplace and accommodations if you are in a school or a university. Uh, But most people don't know how to advocate for themselves, even if they have a formal diagnosis and a letter from their therapist. So that's one thing that people have been asking us for is how can you help more people access things like SSI benefits? How can you, um, 
a lot of people are interested in having a service dog who is trained specifically to support someone living with PTSD. Uh But a simple Google search will reveal to all you listeners out there that the nonprofits that are actually giving away service dogs for people who live with PTSD almost exclusively provide them to veterans of war. Yeah. And from a numeric perspective, there are many more survivors of childhood rape who are living with PTSD than there are uh, veterans living with PTSD. Now, of course, a lot of child sexual abuse survivors go on to become veterans and they have compounded trauma. But just from a sheer numbers game, the face of PTSD as a disability, I think, should absolutely be child sexual abuse survivors. And when we think about what people need to be well after surviving the level of trauma that we have gone through, uh, we should all be thinking about collective care and not only stopping this violence and preventing future children from from being raped or sexually assaulted, but if about 60 million of us are living with this wound, shouldn't it be everybody's responsibility around us who's in community with us to create cultures of care where we can get well. And instead, what we have created so far is this rhetoric or this social norm that we're supposed to stay silent about it forever, Mm -hmm. that if we say something about it, we're revealing that there's something wrong with us. (laughs) And so we internalize this shame and we pretend we try hard. I did this for years to myself. So I'm speaking from experience here. All throughout my teenage years and my 20s, I tried to pretend that I hadn't been raped and tortured throughout a good chunk of my childhood until my disability uh, that is trauma related just caught up with me. And I was so unwell that I just had to stop and talk about what I had endured. And I wish for a world in which people can at least be honest about what they have endured and where they need support. So that was the beautiful thing about hearing people's responses to this toolkit question or what's Mm -hmm. in your toolbox is people allowing themselves to say, I do need support, right? I shouldn't have to heal by myself. And so some things were policy advocacy related, like the stuff I've talked about. But Jackie, a lot of the stuff that people want actually speaks to a different kind of social paradigm in which we take better care of one another as human beings. A lot of people said, I want community. I feel really isolated. I want people to share a meal with regularly. I want people to ask me how I'm doing regularly. I want to have access to nature and be around the trees or the ocean. You know, I want loving animals around me. I want to live in a community of people who care about me and who I care about. And, you know, my friend and comrade, Leah Lakshmi Pyepsna Samarasinha, who is a queer Sri Lankan American survivor of child sexual abuse, she's been writing about her survivorship for years. And she just published a book recently called Care Work, which puts out a new paradigm, a new vision for how to think about access intimacy and creating a culture where we nurture each other and we allow each other's healing to be the work that we're all doing. Yeah. And I think that has to be part of this vision of ending child sexual abuse as well, is that we have to think differently about what are we advocating for, and it can't just be about legal and policy reform. Right. I love it. I love that. Um, Just how expansive you are with the conversation. Um, So, you know, I'd asked you on our break if you have um, events um, planned around the release and the rollout of the Mirror Memoirs and the stories, because you're going to do like one to two per week um, through the fall. And um, so tell us about that. Yeah, well, so we we do have a beautiful team. 
we now have fiscal sponsorship. <coughs> Excuse me. We have fiscal sponsorship as a project from this great nonprofit in L.A. called Community Partners. And we started raising money through them uh, as our 501c3 sponsor last year. So, so far, we've been able to raise just over $200,000, which might sound like a lot of money to people. Um, and it's a great start. But that basically puts me on salary this year as the director and also allowed me to hire an audio editor, a graphic designer, an illustrator, a photo collage artist and a musician to actually clean up the sound uh, from each of the 60 interviews and create some visual content, uh, redo our website. So if you go on to mirrormemoirs.com right now, you'll see our outdated website. There will be a new website, we think around June, July at the latest. Uh, so that's all in motion right now. And we are planning to roll out a beautiful uh, either photo portrait of the survivors. There's about 45 survivors who are coming out publicly, which I'm just so proud of all of them for taking that step. Uh, some of them are already out as survivors. Some are coming out for the first time through this project. And then for those who wanted to stay anonymous, we've hired a, a comic book illustrator to create a character based on that person's story that protects their anonymity. Uh, so you'll see all of that roll out on our Instagram, which is mirror.memoirs. Um, and we will be, as soon as the sound quality is all cleaned up and the music is put on and good to go, we will start releasing the stories, as you said, one to two per week, probably early May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, all the way through uh, October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So, And then in April, I am supposed to be on tour for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Now, we'll see what happens with coronavirus, but we have right. a number of healing circles happening in New York City, scheduled to happen in New York City, um, which you can find on our Instagram, more information about those events or on our Facebook page. So we are hoping to have a really solid rollout. And then we will probably have a big celebration in Los Angeles where we're headquartered in the fall when all of the stories have been released to bring our community together and just celebrate what we've done and talk about where we're going next. Love it. So let's talk about the listening circles and what that experience is, because that's that's basically what you created at the Creating Change Conference. So that's what I experienced. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. You you got to go to one of the longer versions. We've done mm -hmm. a, a couple. We've done three full day gatherings so far, and then we uh, have more commonly done a two hour gathering um, because it's not always possible to get space and get people's time for a full day. But mm -hmm. uh, what that entails is holding space for people's healing. And we, we never ask you and I were talking about this during the break, but I think it's important to share the pieces of the audio archive that we play in live gatherings don't entail the recorded storytellers telling you the details of the violence that they survived. And we never ask people in the room to disclose the details of the violence that they survived because I'm not a trained therapist. I'm an organizer and a storyteller and yes, a healer of sorts, but I don't want to open up, especially in the shorter healing circles, a two hour window of time, like let's go right. around and talk mm -hmm. about the details and then close the space, right? I want to get to that visionary part. I want people to realize they don't have to live in isolation. I want them to realize actually they're around other survivors all the time. All the time. Um, and so the focus is on playing clips from those two visionary questions that I was talking about before the break and then doing exercises around 
breath and feeling your body and releasing shame and feeling your grief and allowing yourself to emote. And then a lot of inner child play and healing exercises, some of which we did at Creating Change. Mm-hmm. And what I have found, we've done about somewhere between 10 and 15 healing circles in the last year or so using a 20-minute spliced together clip from our audio archive and what I have found, and this happened at Creating Change too, which I'll let you speak to, Jackie, is at the end of the day, people go around and sheepishly admit, oh, I almost didn't come yeah. today because yeah. I didn't know what to expect. And mm-hmm. I've never done something like this before. And I'm so glad I came. And what I have been grappling with as the founder of this project is how can I help people get through the door because I know that a lot of people want to be there and Mm -hmm. just haven't figured out how to take that first step. So I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could talk about whether that fear came up for you when we were at Creating Change and what your internal process was like to get into the room. (laughs) Well, you know, and I can be really stubborn, so I'm I'm a good person to ask. (laughs) Um, You know, I think part of it, well, for me, it was a little... um, I was there for a work, you know, Unity was sponsoring, the create a sponsor of Creating Change. And so I was there with a group from work. And so I went early to attend a couple of the all-day institutes. And, um, and yours was one of them. And so part of my internal dialogue, and I could also use the word excuses, um, were, well, I need to be present, you know, as a representative of unity for the rest of the time. And I don't know what this is going to be like. Are we going to, you know, it was all day. And are we going to just be talking about this? Am I going to hear all these stories? Am I going to be triggered? Am I, what am I going to share? And so I went into it thinking that we would be Um, sharing specifically or that I might hear specifically. And so it was in part a little bit of self-care, but also like avoidance. Like, I just just don't know if I can do this and I don't know if I want to. And I've already, and and then there's that, uh, you know, healing happens at different levels throughout your life. It's not like you go to some therapy and, and then you're healed, you know, this kind of experience for me anyway comes back around in different ways and unexpected ways and as I change and grow as a person I you know as I've experienced motherhood as I've you know I have to go through new layers of healing in it and so there's also that sort of voice that's like oh haven't you done enough work already you know you've already dealt with this like can't you just be okay and you know there's that part of me that just wants to be okay and not be marked you know um so all of that was going through my head, and I don't know, I can't speak for anyone else, but I I know that that's not uncommon internal talk. Right. Um, what got me through the door, in part, was that I had already shared with some people that I was going, so there was a little bit of accountability in that regard. And just taking a deep breath that I, and, and remembering the very strong yes that I felt, because there were so, there was so much amazing programming, and there were other things I could have chosen that day. Um, but I had an overwhelming sense of yes when when I chose your institute. And so I felt that I needed to honor that for myself and that whatever it was going to be and, and that if it was too uncomfortable that I was sure that you would let me out the door 
You know, I didn't think I would be trapped, (laughs) you know. So I, you know, so I reminded myself, okay, you know, all of the programming, I mean, throughout the entire conference is, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it is very deep and is very opening and, and you might leave a person feeling vulnerable. So I'm the, you know, part of it was I just opened up to trusting that you were going to create a safe space. Part of it was that you emailed me directly and asked me, you know, what would make me comfortable? And and I said snacks. And then you emailed back and said, what kind of snacks? <laughs> I was like, okay. So that let me, those little tidbits just let me, you know, I was able to remember and know that you were creating a safe space. And so it was up to me to give myself the gift of going and, and, and trusting. So I did. I'm so glad you did. So it was such I. a beautiful day. It and really was. It's, it's always um, amazing to me to see everyone come through the door and know that we're about to leave all of us transformed, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very much a student of Octavia Butler's work. I'm a huge sci-fi fan, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I really appreciate that in Parable of the Sower, she wrote, you know, all that you touch, you change, all that you touch changes you. And yes. I feel that every time I'm in circle with people. And I'm wondering... Now that it's been, I think, about two months since mm-hmm. we met and yep. since we were in circle together, what, if anything, feels different for you having gone through that process? So much, you know, I, you know, if, first I'll say immediately what it, the gift that it gave me for the conference, just apart from personally, was that I had a group of people that I saw throughout the rest of the conference who I was already connected with. Mm-hmm. And so it gave this, it made the entire experience safer, deeper, and and I just felt seen. So there was that that gift, you know. So I was so grateful, so grateful for that and for the timing of it. Where before I went in thinking, oh, this is going to ruin the rest of this. might ruin the rest of my experience here because I'll be <laughs> so, you know, whatever, um, re-traumatized or whatever. And, you know, which is a, a valid concern. And for yes. someone who is in that space, you know, also that might be an honoring choice is to say no, not right now. Um, but for me, it was a yes and and it and it really um, just created a better experience, I think, overall throughout the conference. But since then, um, you know, I again was just so impacted by being able to have those conversations and hear about the healing journeys um, from people in the queer community, so that uh, it illuminated my own experience in in just really deeper ways. And I felt I felt seen at a deeper level. I felt. Um, just I felt that unity and that oneness with with so many people and um, validation mm-hmm. validation was another thing I walked away with and then again back to your question of you know what's the vision for ending this you know there's a call to action in that and um, and a shifting of the paradigm that that I had been holding that maybe that wasn't possible so what has unfolded I can tell you last week I had Matt Kahn on here as I mentioned and the topic was healthy anger well a chapter in his book really triggered me because it was all about forgiveness and looking for the gift in something which can be something that's sort of we use the term spiritual, um, like mal- metaphysical malpractice or spiritual malpractice that, you know, well, if you would just look for the gift in it and um, and move on. And I was like, you know, no, I no, thank you. I don't want that. You know, I want to look for the gift. And I don't want to forgive, you know, my attackers, my perpetrators. And and I'll tell you what happened was that I unplanned. I 
disclosed not childhood sexual abuse, which I've disclosed today now on the air, but um, at actually a more recent sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time publicly that I had done that. And um, I didn't give details because I now had a model, you know, thanks to to your experience, experience that you created. but I was still able to talk about it, and, I, and in a way, and Matt handled it so well, and we just had this really honest dialogue and exchange about um, anger and about uh, violence and trauma. And um, so I don't think I would have been in a place to have had that conversation or, or even this one with you today um, had I not been through the experience. And I've been through a lot of therapy. I've been through EMDR for, you know, post-traumatic stress. I've been, you know, through every modality and, and, um, and much of that has been very fruitful and, um, healing and transformative. Um, but to be able to, um, speak like this on the air is, um, I think directly a result of having experienced what I did with you in Dallas. I'm so grateful for you sharing that with me. Thank you. And it's, I think I just will continue to say, you know, those are spaces that I couldn't create alone. Like we co-created every single person in that room. Like we, it's, it's, there's a reason that this, the room is set up as a circle, right? It's almost like a, a ceremony, a storytelling circle and a healing circle. And I'm just so grateful that we got to experience that together. Yeah, me too. It's a deep gratitude, deep gratitude for everyone who showed up. And we had, we had a young person, we had a teenager in, in the did. room and, you know, and such, I mean, it just, to be able to come together in a cross section like that. Um, so it was the queer community. Yes, but there still was a lot of diversity in the room mm-hmm. and um, to be able to come together and share authentically and openly. And, you know, like you said, we, we need to talk about this and we need to be able to listen to it. And we have to learn both because I think the message that we've had, um, especially in this country is like, I mean, there's the, well, I dealt with it. You can deal with it. Or, you know, I live through it. You can live through it. Or, or we just don't talk about it. You know, and I'm talking about sort of those familial messages um, that are given. And so to be able to unpack shame and um, so that more people can create a vision for how we're going to end this, you know, in order to have the conversations, um, you know, this is this a huge step on that journey is to be able to talk about it, be able to listen and engage the conversation. Absolutely. And I, for me, one of the most gratifying things about mirror memoirs, as we move away from just recorded one-on-one stories and into using those stories as a starting point for in-person gathering is these are some of the first spaces I've ever been in that are, are so gender diverse. I mean, I've been in survivor spaces since I was put into group therapy against my will by the state Mm -hmm. of New Jersey when I was 16, and I'm almost 42 now. And, you know, it's in mirror memoirs that I'm sitting with cisgender men, transgender men, Mm -hmm. cisgender women, transgender women, non-binary people, intersex people, and we're all people of color of different races and ethnicities in addition to being gender diverse. And as you say, increasingly, we are also age diverse. And the thing is, everybody there was raped or sexually assaulted as a child. And everybody there is open to engaging in conversations about healing and intimacy and community building and and perhaps even taking on the question of how do we end this violence, even in small ways in our own homes, in our own families. And that's been really meaningful for my own healing is to allow myself 
to to step into the reality feelings wise and consciousness wise that this is not an issue of women and girls right, right. this is an issue of children right. of all children and that means it's an issue of all adults who have lived through this violence and who have something to contribute to the vision and the effort to end it yes so much good stuff coming from this work and um you know, I think even what you're talking about that in terms of diversity is that it become, it begins to create a model of having this group of people come together in for other reasons and for other causes. And like we can we can come together as people from diverse experiences, backgrounds, gender expression and identity and all of all of those demographics, any way that we want to sort of label um, a, a, a human, a person, um, and do this work together. If we can do this work together, we can do any kind of work together. That's what I'm trying to say. I absolutely agree. It makes me really hopeful yes. for um, ways that human beings can realize our shared humanity and, yes. and commit to whether we have more privilege or oppression around various social justice issues that we can at least commit to working together and, and perhaps to following the leadership of those who are most oppressed in our current paradigms. And that's why Mirror Memoirs has, even within the broad umbrella of LGBTQI plus people of color who survived child sexual abuse, we're absolutely centering and uplifting the leadership of black and indigenous, transgender, non-binary and intersex people, because even within our broad queer and trans community, you know, we have still found ways to oppress yeah. each other. Yeah. And um, I'm really hopeful that this model can help us follow the leadership of those who are most oppressed in our current paradigms. Preach. <laughs> I share that hope with you and that vision. And, you know, and so you talked about um, creating multimedia toolkits so that people can host listening circles. Is that right? Yeah, we're raising money right now. We are a nonprofit with a tiny shoestring budget. So if people want to donate, they can do that at mirrormemoirs.networkforgood.com or just on mirrormemoirs.com. Uh, but we're raising money to create edited audio clips around identities and experiences. For example, here's a 20-minute clip of people who were oppressed in mental health hospitals, or here's a 20-minute clip of Black trans survivors with a 90-minute curriculum guide, a resource sheet, a statistics sheet, so that this work can get out there into the organizing world and into people's living rooms. Awesome. I love it. That music means our time is up. I'll put that website on my Facebook, and thank you, Amita. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.